0: Welcome. I'm Michael Krasny, and this is Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. In this episode, we meet internationally best-selling British-born novelist Lee Child, who has produced a novel every year since 1995, beginning each one on September the 1st. He recently announced his retirement after over 200 million of his novels have been sold, featuring his nomadic, knight-errant, ex-military policeman hero, Jack Reacher. The most recent novel is The Secret, co-authored with Lee's brother, Andrew, who will be his post-retirement replacement. The author of over two dozen New York Times bestsellers, his Jack Reacher novels have been turned into films with Tom Cruise and a TV series with Alan Richson. Before... Setting out to be, as he describes himself, an English writer writing in American, as opposed, he says, to Samuel Beckett, an Irish writer writing in French, he had a 20-year career in commercial television. His first novel was Killing Floor, uh, which came out in 1998 and won an Anthony Award as well as a Barry Award for Best First Novel. He has won many awards since for his writing, and he served as president of the Mystery Writers of America, a judge on the committee which selected the coveted Booker Prize as well, and he will be one of the writers appearing at the 35th Annual National Kidney Foundation Luncheon, which I will be the host of on Saturday, October 28th at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco, beginning at noon Pacific Time and 3 Eastern Time. Uh, If you have questions or comments for Lee Child, please feel free to join us. I want to welcome you, Lee Child, to Gray Matter with Michael Krasny.
1: Thank you, Michael. It's really great to be with you again, and uh, looking forward to the show.
0: And looking forward to talking with you. First, we ought to talk, though, about retirement. Uh, your brother, Andrew, taking over the franchise, as I'll call it, the Reacher franchise. Uh, you're retiring at the top of your game, and I should also say uh, you said publicly you chose the best tough guy writer you know to take o- with the same DNA to take over your writing responsibilities, but why retire now?
1: Oh, that's such a complex question, and I'm struggling with it myself, you know, to find a coherent answer to it. One of the things, well, really, everything that I ever did as a writer was based on how I used to feel as a reader. Uh, All writers are hundreds of times more readers than they are writers, Uh, you know, we do it because we've spent our lives reading books. We love it. We want to contribute. But however many books we write, uh, it's a tiny percentage of the books that we've read. And so, as a kid and as a young person, I I loved series books. I loved a sequence of books by the same author. Uh, th- there was something special about that feeling that you knew the next one was coming out. You just couldn't wait to get it. But sometimes, in fact, too often, in my youthful opinion, the, the writer got lazy or just ran out of gas or got bored with it or phoned it in. Uh, and you could tell this, a great series would just fall off the cliff and you knew the guy was just going through the motions. And I hated that. And I promised myself that I would never do that. I would never phone it in. I would remain as self-aware as I possibly could so that if I felt, you know, if I felt the enthusiasm dropping off or the gas tank getting empty, I would instantly, immediately say, all right, enough. I am not gonna give a second-rate product to my readers. I swore to myself I would never phone it in. And the 24th book that I did called Blue Moon, I thought, you know, nobody will ever know. It's a good book. It came out great. But a couple of times during that process of writing it, I remember sitting down and thinking, oh, I really don't want to do this today. and. I took that as a bad sign, you know? I took it as the trigger. That then brought back to me that, that, that bold promise, I, I would never do anything less than 100%. And so I, at that moment, I thought, yeah, this is it. I'm out of gas, I've got to stop. Uh, and so at that time, I just thought, okay, I'll stop. Um, you know, all series come to an end eventually. So that that'll be it, maybe one more and then I'm out. But then I thought, oh, that's such a shame for the, the, the huge number of loyal readers who love Jack Reacher. Um, they are going to be disappointed about that. So I then started fantasizing about finding a magic potion I could, uh, I could take one night, and the next morning I would wake up uh, 15 years younger with all the energy and stamina and ideas that I used to have. But of course, a magic potion is a fantasy. They don't exist. And so I, I thought, well, yeah, I'm just going to have to to give it up. But then I realized, wait a minute, you idiot. You know a person who was you 15 years ago with the same stamina and energy and ideas. My younger brother, who by a quirk of DNA, we are very similar people and with very similar minds. And so I, th- and he was already a writer. He'd done nine thrillers of his own, and he was really good at it. And I thought, I'll ask him. Does he want to continue it? Would that be a good compromise? So I did ask him, and and actually I was expecting him to say no, because he's a very stubborn and independent guy, and he was into a really good series himself. Um, he'd done three books in a particular series that I was loving. And I thought, no, he's going to say, no, I'll stick to my own stuff. But in the end, he said, yes. So we did a four-book collaboration, and now from next year, he's striking out on his own, continuing the series. And, of course, being British, I do have to remind people in America that, you know, I have no work ethic. Uh, Retirement is a huge thing in one's life. You go to school for a little bit. You work for a very long time, and then you retired, uh, which is supposed to be a new and enjoyable phase of your life. So I thought, yeah, I've always wanted to try that.
0: Why did you make Reacher an American? I mean, he's got a French mother and he speaks a kind of broken French, but, uh, and I know that may have been at least to some extent intentional because of the French marketplace. Uh, But I mean, you've got such an extraordinary commercial success and you wanted to write entertainment type novels that would have that success. And you've achieved that. And I think you deserve a lot of kudos for uh, making all these people love Reacher and so forth. But why make him an American? Because
1: I wanted to have that knight-errant sensation, the, the wanderer, the the person who is, for some reason in their life, required to wander the land doing good. and
0: Sort of like the Lone it, Ranger without Tonto, isn't it?
1: Well, yeah. It's like numerous characters stretching back into history. You could say Robin Hood. You could say numerous medieval Sir so Gawain and the Green Knight, yes. um, uh, going back to Scandinavian sagas, even uh, Greek myth. This The outsider, the wanderer, the noble loner is a perpetual character in fiction. But for it to really work, it needs a huge and empty landscape, which... Europe used to be, uh, you know, back in the Middle Ages when the the European knight-errant was the proponent of, of all those poems and, and sagas and stories. Europe was a big, empty, dangerous continent. The Black Forest, you know, spread for hundreds of miles and was full of dangers. Um, but as time went by, Europe became settled, civilized, very densely populated. The idea that you could have secrets in some remote town is really not plausible in Europe anymore, it hasn't been for a couple of hundred years. So the myth has to emigrate. and we saw that happen, you know that same character, that same myth. Emigrated to the Westerns in America. Uh, towards this is why the end I of, mentioned
0: the Lone Ranger. Yeah,
1: yeah, or Shane. People like that. You know, uh, it became a. Fr- it has to be a frontier type of landscape in order for the story to work. So really, Reacher had to be in America. Plus, f- looking at it from a a commercial point of view, which I needed to do. You know, this was i love writing i i I love it i respect it i enjoy it i celebrate it all that good stuff but also it had to put food on my table i was out of work um the new career had to work and america gives you a better chance american readers uh, this is something that surprises people you know they think english people are born already having read jane austen And uh, actually, no, that's not true. England is a stubbornly illiterate country where not many people read, not enough anyway. And they're very reluctant to spend money on somebody else's advice. Whereas in America, people are generous. They're generous with their time. They're generous with their attention and their money. Uh, You can go into a bookstore in America. One of the greatest joys, actually, of life, go into an independent bookstore in America and ask the owner, uh, I like A, B, and C. What else should I read? And they engage you in conversation, and they suggest a book, and you buy it for $28 or whatever it is and you read it and you come back and you say, that was great, can I get some more, Is what else is good? Or you come back and say, oh, that was awful, what were you thinking, give me something different? Uh, the dialogue is there, all predicated on the person suggesting that you spend $28, which people are happy to do in America, whereas in Britain, that is toe-curlingly embarrassing to suggest that somebody else spends the money. Uh, So the whole process of acceptance was likely to be much easier in America, I thought. So I thought, let's write the book about an American character as if I was American, as if I was an American writer. You know, we never concealed the fact or we never deceived anybody. But the whole proposition was that this was a native product, set in America, written for America, written within the context of America. The rest of the world became a subsidiary market.
0: Why the nom de plume? Why the pseudonym? Uh, You were James Dover Grant. I was born,
1: yeah, I was born James Dover Grant. And uh, that was the name that I signed up for the television career that you mentioned. Uh, I worked nearly 20 years for commercial television as a staff person. And part of our contract was that we weren't allowed to work for anybody else. But actually, of course, we did. If there was an interesting project somewhere else or an interesting bit of moonlighting to be done, we did do it. And of course, the company was perfectly fine with that as long as you didn't rub their noses in it, which meant that if you had a different project to do, you would use a different name. So that overall, over the 20 years, I probably, It was at least five, maybe six different names I worked under. So for me, it became automatic in show business that you start a new project, you start it with a new name. And uh, so it was not a, a decision to make. It would have been the other way around. It would have been extraordinary not to do it.
0: And Lee came from, as I understand it, sort of a joke, like le car, uh, and your family (laughs) joke. And Child was uh, deliberate because you wanted to be between Chandler, in terms of mystery writers, and Christie, as an Agatha Christie. Do I have those stories right, I think?
1: Well, the stories are right, except that the second part of that story was ascribed to me by somebody uh, that—that was not in my thinking, because— Generally speaking, bookstores shelf things differently according to the store. Uh, Agatha Christie would certainly be in mystery, whereas Raymond Chandler probably would be in literature. So you're not necessarily uh, going to be between those two people. That was not a, a consideration for me. It was simply, again, a theory. There were two theories that I, I worked under. And I really want to emphasize that, you know, it's not down and dirty to think about the commercial aspect of it. You've got to. Uh, you've got to be aware of everything. And when I started out in the middle 90s, everything was still physical. Uh, there were no, there was no online shopping then. It was physical browsing in a physical bookstore. And if you observe people doing that, which I love to do, I love to sort of eavesdrop and watch how people make decisions. And if you do that, you'll see that in the West, people browse from left to right instinctively, and they get bored very quickly. So that A and B are not necessarily great because they can be shelved at knee height based on the previous section terminating. C, D is a great position to be in because that's eye level at the beginning when the browser is fresh and excited. And uh, when I started out, I checked all these things. I did, I did research quite seriously. And when I was starting out in the middle 90s, a huge percentage of bestsellers were written by authors whose name began with C. Uh, for that reason, I think, that it was just right there where people were looking. They were not yet fed up that, you know, by the time you get to U, V, W, X, Y, Z, People are worn out. So if you're at the beginning of the section, that works a lot better.
0: Well, you had quite a career in television. In fact, uh, you were involved with Brideshead Revisited and The Jewel in the Crown and uh, certainly not the television, the type of television that Newton Minow was uh, characterizing when he talked about the vast wasteland back in 1961, which has sort of stuck to TV for better or worse. Nevertheless, when you were let go by it was Grenada, I believe, the company you were working for, uh, it became sort of your way of striking back by starting on the day you were fired, that September 1st day. I think I have this story straight, which is really fascinating to me because the Reacher novels are called revenge novels. It was as if you were kind of establishing a pattern of revenge against a company that let you off.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. That it was, uh, I think, always we, we try to prove somebody wrong. Uh, you know, they were, it wasn't just me, you know. It was, they didn't pick on me in particular. They They did that 1990s thing of discovering shareholder value. And at that point, I was 39 years old and I had a I had a great salary. Uh, Benchmark was always that we should earn more than the prime minister of the UK, and uh, we always did. Uh, I had a pension, I had uh, benefits, life insurance, all of that regular employment stuff that the previous generation used to have. Uh, And so they just did that thing where they, they just took a look at the, database and, and crossed out everybody that was over a certain level and got rid of them. And so, that there were 300 uh, from my company alone that went. And yeah, it was about revenge. It was not just for me personally, but for the whole thing. This was a television company that had been developed over two generations by this point and was superb in terms of its drama, you know, those titles that you pointed out. Also, there was Prime Suspect, there was Cracker, Uh, you know, there was good stuff being done. And great documentary, fearless news coverage, Uh, just before my time at that company they had exposed a government scandal involving British Steel, which was the nationalized uh, steel producer. And in its in its way, that was really the British equivalent of the Pentagon Papers. There were all kinds of threats, uh, you know, imprisonment, bankruptcy. The family that owned the company were at severe risk, real peril but they stuck to their guns and uh, refused to cancel the show. And so it was a brave, talented company that was torn down simply to make more profit. And so in a way, yeah, revenge on them, but revenge on the notion that uh, profit was all that mattered.
0: Well, Richard novels have been often identified as revenge novels, but in some ways they're also novels to a great extent about someone who not only seeks but meets out justice, who takes care of bullies. Even in the new novel The Secret, there's a bully in a bar scene, and you know that Reacher's going to take care of him, and indeed he does. Use of violence, but nevertheless violence that seems equitable and fair and made it out in a way that's fair. There's something about that that clearly is very attractive to readers and has been, I think, a good hallmark of your success. I've got a lot of questions here, though, and I want to... Uh, give deference to the fact that people have questions for you. And again, I invite those of you to join us. I have lots of questions myself, but let's uh, defer here to those who are experiencing this live. Uh, Let me start out with Michael in Ogden, Utah, who says, how is the process of transitioning to moving pictures gone? And what did you think of the Tom Cruise movies? What about the current series? Uh, They're kind of broad questions, but let's move it into the realm of, and thanks for the question, Michael, uh, how you felt about, movies, especially in terms of Tom Cruise versus Alan Richston. Alan Richston is more, let's say, the appropriate height for the character of Jack Reacher. And many of us who know Jack Reacher as a character of our imaginations. I just saw a picture recently, I have to tell you this, I just saw a picture recently of Tom Cruise standing with, and he's a terrific actor, actually, I'm very much an admirer of his, but standing with Cameron Diaz, and she was at least a couple feet taller, I'm exaggerating, being hyperbolic, <laughs> but she towered over him. He's a short guy, basically. And Reacher is not a short guy. And yet Tom Cruise is an enormous draw in terms of ticket sales. Uh, so let, let's talk about that casting, but also the transition to make Reacher into this motion picture hero, which he became with Tom Cruise, first of all.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, really, you've got a you've got to understand that it was two separate eras. Uh, The movie deal uh, that Tom Cruise eventually started was done in 2005, and that now feels to me like the uh, dark ages in terms of screen entertainment, in that feature films were all that there were. Uh, You know, there was network television, half-hour shows or whatever, but really streaming television had not been thought of yet. Um, It was all about the movies, and to sell a book to the movies, in a way, is fantastic. You know, you get money for it, you get a lot of exposure for it. The movie effectively becomes a very expensive promotion campaign for your book series. So it is super attractive to do. Uh, But one critical difference back then was that the movie financing depended entirely on the actor. The actor's status attracted the money. And so for a big movie like we hoped Reacher would be, you really had to have an A-list actor. And there's probably only 12 or 15 in the world that would meet the the requirement to bring that kind of budget. And uh, I remember it very well, March of 2011, I got a call from the uh, producer and director. The the screenplay had finally been written and it emerged from six years of what they call development hell. We had a fabulous screenplay. And like all movies, it was produced by a conglomeration of different names. You know what it's like? If you watch the credits uh, of a movie, you'll see three, four, sometimes five producer names at the beginning. And one of the producers was Cruz Wagner, uh, which was Tom Cruise's production company. And he had invested in the movie because he knew the books and liked them, but that was all he was intending to do. But then the screenplay was written by Christopher McQuarrie, who is a great, great screenwriter, uh, Oscar winner for The Usual Suspects, uh, really smart guy. And the screenplay was fantastic. And it was circulated amongst all the producers as a courtesy. Uh, Tom Cruise read it, uh, loved it, and said, I wanna play this part, which then produced a really big decision uh, because, as you said, Tom is a fantastic actor uh, internally, just a great actor, a great storyteller, really interested in the theory of storytelling, and a really nice guy. Uh, you know, none of what you hear about Tom Cruise is true. He, he's just a lovely guy, and I've got nothing bad to say about him.
0: Well, most of Ex- the bad stuff goes to Scientology, uh, for better than yeah. worse.
1: Yeah, you know that is uh, that is a separate issue, uh, but in terms of his work, uh, he's great. But yeah, he's he's he was too small. Um, we kind of all knew that. But from the movies' point of view, it was an international megastar. From my point of view, it was a way of promoting my books. In parts of the world that I really can't feasibly get to, you know, Brazil, China, Indonesia, or places that you you can't really effectively promote in. Uh,
0: it well, was forgive somebody, me, an ancillary question to that from Lisa at San Francisco is, how involved were you with the casting in both Reacher series and the films?
1: Uh, I was, I was not—well, the casting for the— The Tom Cruise movies was all about Tom Cruise. You know, as soon as he was cast, then the rest uh, followed in that sense. And I didn't have much input, nor did I want much input, to be absolutely honest. I know that there is a a gigantic difference between books and the screen. Uh, The two things are really not the same. And I also don't like situations where anything is done by committee. And I, I knew from experience that the... Movie people would be permanently anxious and uneasy if I was always watching over their shoulder. So I said at the very beginning, first thing I, I ever said was, "This is your show. This is your movie. Don't worry about what I think. Do what you think is correct." So they did everything really for the movies, and uh, the, the. But we learned, you know the. It was a kind of, what's the opposite of virtuous circle? It was a kind of... catch. Yeah, I don't know what... You know, the movie people were relying on the book audience to kickstart the movie audience, yet the book audience was going to refuse to like it because they thought Tom Cruise was wrong for the part. So it really didn't work uh, in the way that they thought it would. Personally, I thought the movies, as movies especially the first one, I thought it was slick and elegant and r- really well done as a movie. In fact, here's here's an interesting coincidence for you. The last time I was at the National Kidney Foundation in San Francisco, I flew home uh, on the red eye and sitting next to me was a guy watching the Jack Reacher movie on his screen. And so I sort of eyeballed it you know, sideways without the sound, which I find very valuable sometimes. Just look at the visuals of it. It's a great movie, but is it a Reacher movie? That was the problem. So we learned as we went along, and I did have a lot more input into the uh, streaming TV series. Uh, Weird situation because it was during the pandemic, so we had to do the casting by Zoom, which was... Odd, because normally you know you go to LA and it's all good fun, and you, you know, you're hanging out all day and meeting these actors. But uh, this was all done remotely by Zoom, which ultimately I really valued because that is all that the viewer is ever going to see—the person on the screen—and I, I, I made up my mind to judge within a second and a half when they step on the screen: Do they own it? Do they dominate you? Is this Reacher, in fact? Reacher walks into a room, he makes an impression. Was that going to happen on the screen? And it absolutely did with Alan Richson. So I thought, yeah, he's the guy. And then I was anticipating a kind of discussion, you know, amongst arguing your corner amongst all the different interested parties. But actually, everybody thought the same thing. Yeah, Richson is the guy. So that then became... Really easy, and the cast, the rest of the casting followed on from that. But I had a lot more to do with the television than I did with the movies. Um, partly because I had learned that I needed to, and partly because they were just a real fun bunch of people. And uh, television production is different; it's quicker. It, it, they start in the morning, they work, 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 and they get the whole thing done much faster than they do with a movie. So it was uh, it was a lot of fun to be involved, and I was involved all the way along, yeah.
0: Uh, just uh, struck by your story about being on the plane and the Reacher movie coming on the screen reminded me of an interview I did with the novelist Jane Smiley, who tells a story about somebody seated next to her in a plane reading one of her novels, and she said to the person, she said, oh, by the way, I wrote that novel. And the person turned the book over looked at her photo looked at her and said oh yeah i see and then went back to reading Um,
1: yeah that's that i mean that happens all the time it's so fun Uh, i was once going to la and i by chance i was sitting next to alec baldwin and in front of us were two people one of them was watching an alec baldwin movie and the other one was reading my book and but you know the great thing about being an author is that you are basically in the shadows. It's the book that's the thing, not your physical self. And so everybody on the plane was aware of Baldwin. Nobody was aware of me. And I've heard great stories from author friends. Uh, Holland Coburn, good friend of mine, early on, he was on a plane and the person next to him was reading his book and he couldn't resist. He sort of nudged her and said, that's my book. And she said, no, it isn't. I just bought it in the airport.
0: (laughs) Here's Reed, who says, your output is impressive, exclamation mark. How do you keep generating fresh ideas and plot lines? And what is your process co-authoring as you did with Andrew Grant?
1: You know, the... the, that, the question about ideas, from an author's point of view, is actually the reverse of what people think. Uh, you know, a question like that implies that ideas are hard to come by and you've got to search them out. And that's really not true. Uh, you know, today alone, I've read the news this morning, read a lot of online stuff. There's 10 ideas right there. Every day produces 10 ideas. The skill is selecting them. Which idea, or in fact, which two or three ideas combined together are going to be durable. But forgive be... me,
0: there's something extraordinary about the fact that you just do one draft. Very unusual.
1: There is, yeah. The one draft thing is a kind of peculiarity of mine, which is that I I want the story to be authentic. And for me, anyway, in my head, the way to make it authentic is just to write it out, um, as it occurs in my head, as if it was really happening. And then you get, uh, you know, many, many times, my editor will say, wouldn't it be better if this happened after that? And I say, yeah, probably, but it didn't. (laughs) In other words, you know, I'm a a normal, rational person, but I I have to, at the time, believe that this story is really happening. And to go back and alter it, Seems dishonest to me.
0: So, are you feeling visceral when you're actually experiencing this in the present time?
1: Yeah, I think you know, having worked in the in the visual uh, sphere for the first half of my career, I see it very visually. It's as if I'm sitting there at the keyboard, and there is a kind of invisible hologram in front of my head, in front of my eyes, where something, where it's happening. This, the story is unfolding. Uh, as if I can see it and hear it, and so I just write it down uh, as it unfolds in my imagination.
0: And here's actually an appropriate question from Henry in the UK in London. It says, "What is your method for building a story from start to finish?" Thanks for the question, Henry.
1: Yeah, Henry, that's. Uh you know, disappointing answer, really, because I don't really have a process. I, I I, always start September 1st, as you mentioned. And every single August, I've always thought, ah, I'm washed up, i got no ideas, nothing's coming. And then about the middle of August, I get a sense of, oh, I could maybe start it like this. And then by the end of August, I've got a pretty clear idea for the first paragraph. And so I write the first paragraph, and then I scratch my head, and I think, what would be a good second paragraph? Then I scratch my head again, what would be a good third paragraph? Uh, and it really continues that way till the end of the book. Nothing preplanned, nothing, uh, no structure, no outline, no nothing. Just like living real life, we do not know what's going to happen. Uh, if we could script it out in advance, it would be rather wooden and dull, I think.
0: There's often this distinction, and I don't know how real it is, because there's a lot of overlap between writers who are more potboiler or commercial writers or write thrillers and mystery-type novels as opposed to more literary novelists. It's kind of a snobbery. Often the former category includes science fiction writers. You were on the Booker Committee, which is about as high literary as you can get, and a lot of people compare your work to great mystery writers uh, who are certainly literate in every sense of the word, like Raymond Chandler. Uh, Do you, at any point in your career, did you ever get the yearning that you wanted to be? I mean, I mentioned your comparison to Beckett, which was a funny one, but that you wanted to be in that more lofty category?
1: Well, you know, first of all, I have a pedantry attack uh, when when asked that question, because what does literary mean? Uh, You know, to be honest, literary means uh, made up of words which are made up of letters. And all books are, are that, so all books are literary. Um, I was more, much more uh, interested in being an entertainer than a, a figure, you know. I, I don't care in the least if anybody remembers me 50 years from now or even 10 years from now. That is not the point. The point is to give people... Who have hard, miserable, boring lives give people a couple of days fun and satisfaction, and uh, in in an entertainment sense, and in a kind of wish fulfillment sense. You you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Reacher is popular because he he'll take down the bully, and I think that is a huge component of people's lives that. You know, despite the despair we might feel about political dysfunction and this and that and and partisanship and division, my experience is, and I'm saying this as one of the most bitterly cynical people you will ever meet, I think that most people actually are full of goodwill and kindness and want to do the right thing but almost nobody can do the right thing because they're either physically incapable or they're intimidated or they're inhibited in some way. Maybe the bully is a manager at work, and if you, you know, if you open that can of worms, you'll get in trouble. So most people live <laughs> with a sort of buzz of frustration all the time. Uh, you know, let's say you're walking down the street and you see some thug slap his girlfriend what inside, what do you wanna do? You wanna put a stop to that, but you almost certainly don't. And so you, you have this miserable experience of not being able to express the, the nobility which is inside you. And that's where Reacher stands in for you. Reacher is your proxy. If Reacher is walking down the street and sees some thug slap his girlfriend, you know what's gonna happen. And people get tremendous satisfaction out of that because just for one moment in their lives, the right thing
0: is happening. So what does Lee Child do if he sees somebody slapping his girlfriend?
1: (laughs) Well, funnily enough, uh, uh, I was just thinking about that um, today, actually, because it was 10 years ago. It was uh, 2013 was the last time I ever had a fight and that was a situation a bit like that it wasn't a, a thug and a girlfriend it was i was i'd been out extremely late it was uh, probably about 2:33 o'clock in the morning i was uh, walking home on lower broadway in uh, in new york and i saw a taxi cab stop and this tiny little driver a sikh man with a turban was trying to get a drunken frat boy out of the back of the cab because he was about to throw up. And if somebody throws up in your cab, then that is the end of your shift. On a sort of biohazard basis, you can't continue. And so this poor driver who'd rented that cab for 200 bucks probably for the shift was gonna be out of pocket for the rest of uh, the week. And uh, it was all terribly unfair. And this big fat frat boy was abusing the guy and refusing to get out. So I crossed the street and helped the driver out. And uh, the frat boy started a fight with me, um, which happily I won, but not as easily as I used to. he hit me in the face, and I had a, I had a cut on the eyebrow, on my eyebrow, that needed eight stitches. Ooh. So that, uh, you know, that is still my instinct, but now I'm so old, uh, I'll probably try—I'll I'll be one of those people in the background with, you know, the buzz of frustration that I can't do anything about it anymore.
0: Well, when was it that you stood up and said, F you to Harvey Weinstein?
1: Oh, yeah, that was back in about— uh, that must have been 2005, 2000. Yeah, it was It was 2005, because like I said, that movie deal was in 2005 that led to the Tom Cruise movie. And Weinstein had bit on it and failed to get it. And because of his ego, he wanted something out of me. He wanted some part of me. So he he wanted me to rewrite a movie that he, he had bought. Uh, a great concept for a movie, but a terrible screenplay. And so he said, would you rewrite this? Because at the time, he had a theory that novelists are better at plot logic than screenwriters. So he wanted me to do it. And my movie agent kind of wanted me to do it too, because it was going to be uh, you know, a decent project. But he was also cautious because he knew Weinstein was a bully, which... And he said that to me, which to me is like a red rag to a bull. So I thought, all right, we'll see how tough he is. So I went to the initial meeting with him. And, and Harvey spent the first 20 minutes telling me he's got this bad reputation, but actually he's a real pussycat and he loves his talent and he never treats him badly. But in between, every line was a kind of, you better believe I'm a tough guy. And it was just boring. So I did, after 20 minutes, I said, F you, Harvey. You have no idea what tough is.
0: Yeah, you said, I'm (laughs) from Birmingham, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I said, I'm from Birmingham. Uh, You know, nothing you can do is going to worry me. And uh, after I said the F word to him, he he sort of became my best friend. And uh, I did that script for him, and I did... A bunch of other projects I would get strange calls from. I got a call at midnight one night from Toronto, Canada, where they were shooting a movie with a very prestigious screenwriter who had written it, but the final scene was not working. And he said, if I send you the screenplay, would you rewrite the final scene overnight and deliver it by 7 a.m.? And I did that, and I did a bunch of other things for him. Um, But... And in fact, uh, there was a movie called Wind River. I think that was his last the last movie he was involved with. He called me and, and wanted all kinds of discussions about how to promote it because it was essentially a crime story. And he wanted to know what's the best way of promoting a crime story within that community. And I said I'd... Uh, I said, call me back tomorrow and I'll, I'll I'll have thought of some ideas, but he never called me back because that was the day that the whole scandal erupted. Uh. And uh, shamelessly, I mean, shamefully, I, I mean, I was very well aware of his relationship with me as a man, but I'd never really thought of what his relationships with women must be like. And uh, I, you know, afterward, in retrospect, I could completely understand it.
0: You mentioned being in Ontario. That's where most of the Reacher filming went on, wasn't it? In Ontario.
1: Yeah, to- Toronto, which is it's kind of historic survival. You know, they have uh, they had a lot of tax incentives for doing it. They had a very advantageous exchange rate for many years, and so a lot of companies would go and make movies in Toronto, and therefore a big infrastructure was built up. Great crews, great union crews, great facilities. And so it became self-perpetuating. And so, yeah, Toronto stands in for practically everywhere these days.
0: And you have a law degree, which uh, has fascinating to me because I don't know if you use it in the Reacher novels. Uh, there's a lot of research, and let's talk about that for a moment, that goes into the research novels, especially about chains of command and the American military and all of those kinds of things, uh, research in terms of a lot of, uh, shall we say, weaponry and that sort of thing. Uh, it's clear to me as a reader that you've done lots of homework, that you've brought it to the table for this one draft for each novel beginning on September 1st. By the way, Isabella Allende begins each novel. Uh, we did a podcast with her on January 8th. goes back to the House of the Spirits. Maybe more superstition in some ways. Or starting a letter to her to her grandfather, but uh, I'm interested in the research you've done and that you do characteristically, or I I use the past tense here because we've got some questions about your retirement coming up here.
1: Yeah, research is a really fascinating thing. Uh, Some say they
0: enjoy it more than the writing. Uh,
1: Well, I find, you know, you've got to look at your circumstances. And and, uh, being in the kind of market that I'm in, which is a book a year, uh, you've you don't really have time to do what I would call new or fresh research. You don't have time because research needs to percolate. Uh, You need to have perspective in order to understand which parts of it are important and which parts of it are boring. And uh, so I never did specific research specifically for any particular book. Uh, I mean, I would if it was like some trivial thing, how many bullets go into a particular gun, Uh, how long does it take to fly from Atlanta to New York or something like that. I would check a little fact like that. But anything larger or bigger or more germane, I would rely on what I already knew, what I had found out through regular normal curiosity uh, over the preceding years. Uh, And that kind of research has had time to percolate and become the iceberg that you need it to be, where the visible part is important and the rest of it that's below the waterline you can not bother with. So yeah, research for me is, is you know, the really pretentious answer for a writer is your whole life is research. Uh, every person you speak to, every place you go, every movie you see, every TV you see, every book you read, everything, might come in handy at some point. And it really does. You know, I'm I'm quite interested in cars. And so, I read automotive stuff. And years ago, I remember reading about when they brought in side airbags in cars. Uh, You know, we got used to the airbag in the steering wheel and so on, and then they brought in the ones on the side. Why? And the re- medical research was all about how lateral displacement of the brain side to side is actually much worse for you than forward and back uh, yeah. agitation of the brain. So, And that was years ago. And then many years later, it f- shows up in a Reacher novel. He hits somebody in the side of the head because lateral displacement of the brain is much more damaging than forward forward and back you know anything can pop up uh, as the product of research so uh, you know my my only advice for writers is and this unnecessary advice because writers inevitably are always interested in everything just soak it up just be fascinated by everything all the time and then some kind of natural process will turn that into valuable research
0: it's like being a talk show host. I mean, being a generalist is perhaps the best and most optimal situation to be in. And then all these things, serendipity, come when you didn't expect them or they come almost like manna from heaven. I know you have a big interest in guitars, though. You were talking about your interest in cars. You, you have quite a guitar collection, don't you?
1: I do. I mean, I would. that goes back to a, a thing that is so common amongst writers uh, that secretly they all want to be musicians. Um, you know, Stephen King, who I know says quite openly, I would give it all up if I could be a great musician. And a lot of people feel the same. There's a connection between writing and music in that. A book starts somewhere and goes somewhere else by the end of it, like a piece of music does. It has a key. It has a feel. Uh, there's a lot of similarities, I think. And so, writers are generally frustrated musicians, and I certainly am. I. You know, as a teenager, like every other single teenager in the world, I wanted to be in a pop group, and I, I wanted to learn to play the guitar. And I can very badly. Uh, you know, it is absolutely not my, my talent. And a lot of it is that awful boomer thing that we do, which is that we buy what we couldn't afford when we were young and really, really wanted it. And I remember being a teenager to have an electric guitar, was just the, the paramount ambition. Uh, nothing could be better than that. So I, I'm i a very bad player, but I'm a very good collector.
0: But you have the love of cannabis that many great musicians, especially rock musicians have. Uh, so you had that yeah. going for you too.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm unashamed about that. I've been a cannabis user for, what is it now, 54 years. And... Uh, Yeah, no, I'm the poster boy for it. It doesn't do you any harm.
0: Uh, You call uh, yourself an old stoner, in fact, I believe, haven't you? I
1: am, yeah. That is, uh, I'm an old stoner now. I'm getting used to being an old lot of things now. But, yeah, I'm a a stoner from way back. And, uh, you know, I think, obviously, if everybody smoked weed instead of drinking alcohol, the world would be a better place. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I recommend it.
0: Here's a question from Sarah in New York. Thank you for the question, Sarah. What will you miss most about inhabiting the world of Jack Reacher?
1: Uh, well, you know, I'm never not going to inhabit the world of Jack Reacher because r- writing is is two parts. The second part is the business side of it, typing it out, uh, getting it published, promoting it, and all that kind of thing. The main part of it is daydreaming. Just You're just sitting there... And it's a huge part of writing, lying horizontal on your sofa, daydreaming. That is a huge part of it. And I will never stop doing that. So I will always, in some way, inhabit the world, Jack Reacher. What I'm really going to miss, I think, is the company of other writers, readers, booksellers. It is a fabulous section of the population, just lovely people, uh, charming. Fabulous people that you feel great about spending time with. And that's what I've enjoyed most about it. And uh, I will miss that.
0: Well, I was thinking, uh, I was reading you talking about writers that influence you the most. And uh, you mentioned Michael Conley a few times. Uh, Michael Conley, we did a podcast with a while back. Uh, You also mentioned John McDonald and Alistair McKay and Robert B. Parker, all writers that, forgive me for putting it so bluntly, with the exception of Conley, you've done better then. You've had more success then. Uh, and I'm not just talking about sales of books here. I'm talking about the whole big picture, including motion pictures.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, generations change a little bit. That uh, If you go back to people like John D. MacDonald, you know, that post-war generation that was writing in the 50s and the 60s, even into the 70s, they were fantastically productive. You know, I, I'm regarded as a veteran for having done 24 solo Reacher books, uh, and people in that generation would do 10 times that many. Uh, I bet John D. MacDonald did well over 100 novels of one kind or another. The Easily. Travis yeah. the Travis McGee were, were his best and uh, what I remember with most affection. But it was a whole different setup back then, Um, and mass sales of books, book sales were really healthy in the past, but the modern era or the slightly pre-modern era, let's say 20 years ago, uh, really well-developed promotion, big bookstores, a lot of uh, attention paid. So to an extent, you're at the mercy of what generation you're in, but uh, I wouldn't maybe i've sold more copies i don't know but i wouldn't <clears throat> i wouldn't say that i've had more success than somebody like john d macdonald because you know his books are are just great and if anybody said mine compared to those i would take that as as absolute validation
0: there are those who um are saying maybe the novel has seen its day they said that with james joyce of course with ulysses but the novel has seen its day because of artificial intelligence And I don't know where artificial intelligence is going to go. We've done podcasts on it and so forth, but what's the sense you have?
1: Great question. And, you know, on the artificial intelligence, my instinct is that given its techniques, what it does is it learns everything that has gone before. Uh, You know, by definition, that's what it does, it it consumes everything. Uh, You know, if you asked an artificial intelligence engine to write, a Jack Reacher novel, it would have to scour all the previous Jack Reacher novels and then in some way reproduce them. And by definition, that is always retrospective. There can be nothing new out of artificial intelligence. It has to be based on what has already happened. So, I think that in terms of innovation and new development, artificial Intelligence is pretty impotent. It can't. It can't do anything new because all it can learn is old. So I'm not particularly worried about artificial intelligence for novel writing. Uh, will the novel itself disappear? Well, a novel is only a particular format of a story, and so the the really important question is: Will storytelling ever disappear? And the answer to that is absolutely not. No. I mean, no way. Uh, it is absolutely baked in uh, to the human uh, experience that we, we need story. We depend on story. You could probably make anthropological arguments that storytelling is what created Homo sapiens. Uh, you know, there's a serious movement that we shouldn't be called Homo sapiens. We should be called Pan Narans, meaning the storytelling ape, because story is so central to our our way of getting through life. So, will the manner of storytelling alter? And I think inevitably, of course it will. And my particular theory about that is that we will return to oral storytelling, because probably for 100,000 years or more, we listened to stories. We sat on a cave floor listening to somebody telling us a story audibly. And for a long time, the modern equivalent of that, the audio book, for a long time uh, found it difficult to gain traction because it had, there was a clunkiness to it. You needed 20 cassettes. Or 20 CDs or whatever, and a machine to to do it all, and it had a slight, slight negative tinge of uh, disability. You know, blind people depended on him, so it was in a particular market segment. But then we've now got a, an entire generation absolutely trained as a second nature to download stuff and be perpetually wearing earphones so that my particular guess is that story will become uh, oral story again. That we, we will have gone through 150 years of common folk reading off the page, but that will be a very minor blip in in the long-term history of human storytelling. And I think we probably will go back to listening to story again.
0: Very insightful, and I think prescient. Uh, I thank you for that analysis. Uh, before we conclude, I've got to ask you about your latest, The Secret. Um, we got some pretty rough customers in there, but they're women this time as killers. And is that a conscious choice on you and your brother's part?
1: Yeah, we started out, fascinated by that news story coming out of Russia um, a couple of years ago about how these well-dressed, prosperous businessmen were falling from high-floor windows in various parts of Russia for no apparent reason, Uh, one after the other, and clearly it was some kind of Putin-inspired elimination. But we, we were just stuck on this image of apparently unconnected, apparently prosperous and well to do people raining down from high floor windows in a way that was provocatively obvious, but completely denied. And so that's where we started out. And then there was a decision, like I said before, it's always it's not one idea, it's always two or three combined. So then it we thought, let's make it a prequel set back in the days when Reacher was in the army. He is delegated to investigate this uh, as part of a multi-agency task force. And then we thought, you know, for the villains, it's it's so expected in a way that it should be men. Let's, let's subvert that a little bit. Because the flip side of feminism is that they're bad as well as good. So you know, let's let's have a couple of really bad ones.
0: Now, Margaret Atwood, uh, not to not drop a name here, but I remember saying that it concerned her that feminism was trying to make so many women virtuous and you know beyond reproach when there are a lot of villains who are female.
1: Yeah, and that's I've always been proud of that really with the Richard series. That Reacher is a kind of post-feminist. He completely understands that women are. Totally equal, and uh, that—but that—that is totally equal. You but know, he can't settle us. down
0: with any single woman, can he? Well, that's not his fault. You
1: know, that is sort of uh, one of the fascinations for me about the series is that he's—he's—he's he's, he's described as a love him and leave him type, and that's really not true. He—he he falls for smart, strong, intelligent women. But the problem is if you're a smart, strong, intelligent woman, you look at Reacher and you know that, yeah, this is gonna be great for 48 hours, but there is no future in it. So he is the one who is, uh, is left most of the time. And that, that to me has always been the most interesting thing about his, his life is that he loves his solitude, but he is very worried about being lonely. And that is a, a difficult balance for him to manage.
0: Which is something that a lot of readers identify with as well. I mean, to a great extent, I would imagine, here and abroad.
1: Yeah, you know, it's a strange world that we, we have this gigantic population. Our cities are packed and dense and busy. But a lot of the time, we feel isolated and lonely.
0: Well, on that note of isolation and loneliness, let me thank all who joined us for this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny and all who will be hearing the episode on Apple, Spotify or on our website at graymatter.show. That's gray with an E. We encourage you to become a member of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny by going to graymatter.show. And thanks to our team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Kevin, Mickey and Jeff, and to this episode's special guest, Lee Child, who I will see soon and look forward to being with you at the National Kidney Foundation Luncheon. Thank you, Lee.
1: Thank you, Michael. Always a pleasure.
0: I'm Michael Krasny.
1: Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by
0: Cashfly
1: at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.